There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hello, hello. Welcome back to uh, episode, damn it, Daniel. Can you look before you hit record? Hang on, wait there. I'm back. Episode 13, apparently. Um... (laughs) As ever, I'm fully prepared to record this intro. I'm doing it from the wardrobe again today, as you can hear. That's very bassy, actually. I sample that, because it's so damn loud in Reading again. But we'll cope. I've, I've put music under it again, so you can't tell anyway. Music available at danielsack.bandcamp.com. <laughs> so good at plug-in. So good at plug-in, it's like I'm a professional. This week's guest is Luke Turner a journalist and writer from The Quietus. Um, and we sat down a good few weeks ago now to talk about his book, Out of the Woods, which is a memoir about... Well, we're going to talk about it in the podcast, so why should I tell you right now? I would just be repeating myself. Um, but yeah, it's currently shortlisted for the 2019 Wainwright Nature Writing Prize and the 2019 Polari Prize. The Polari Prize is an award for first books by LGBT plus writers. He's also currently co-curating The People's Forest, which is a year-long arts program devoted to the history of Epping Forest. So make sure you put that in your search boxes and hit return as well. Maybe just The People's Forest, Luke Turner, I'm feeling lucky and see where you end up. We got to talk about his book and masculinity and music and just everything good as usual. You know I'm not good at these intros, yeah? You've worked that out by now. 13 episodes in, you know I'm not great at this bit. Um, I think you're going to enjoy this one. We also talked a bit about The Quietus, which is a music and uh, pop culture website he co-founded 11 years ago. Um, it's a space that allows itself to be unabashedly subjective in its in its um, criticism and I think that's really important in the arts like when we when we are creating anything our end goal is often either to evoke an emotion or to express an emotion and emotions are subjective 
when if you try to objectively review music it's really hard like what does an objective review of music tell you now like you can objectively review a kettle but a kettle's job is something measurably objective so i find i tend to gravitate towards those more subjective sources because they're dealing in emotion they feel somewhat more truthful but yeah big fan of the quietness um but also like i'm a fan of how they're dealing with the difficulties of running a website in this kind of targeted advertising era it, it's a website that was born at a time where advertising made money for websites and now it doesn't so them surviving on the kindness of strangers which is how i run this podcast is how i release music it means a lot to hear that they're still managing to survive because their audience are willing to support that and it i don't know not to be on a, a soapbox at all but i think in in this day and in in this day and age we need to be more aware as as listeners as enjoyers as lovers of things that we can help those people continue creating if someone is releasing music and it's not hitting the spotify algorithm we can put it in playlists we can share that work we can push and help them break through that algorithm if they're on twitter we can hit retweet not not just like not the heart the heart means something to the algorithm but the retweet means a hell of a lot more you know we can play a part in sharing that and keeping those uh smaller creators or less financially viable creators alive you know and i think it's an important thing i think we can be a little lazy you know oh there's new thing new thing new thing but that laziness in the long run doesn't benefit the creator but it also doesn't benefit us because if those creators don't continue to create we miss out on all that joy and we end up in the situation like we did with Spotify last year where every release was Drake you know and I don't know how you feel about Drake but I don't want all music to be Drake I feel like that would be boring Drake and BTS you know let's get some other bands to exist other than Drake and BTS and to get off my soapbox a minute and admonish myself I need to do that more I need to use my social media but I need to use mine to promote the things I love a lot more and and hopefully I'll be able to bring some new stuff to your ears uh, or eyes or stomachs can I they're the three things that we enjoy things with there's no other part of our body we enjoy things with is there anyway ramble over and now I have to awkwardly promote Patreon uh, I didn't plan this in any way but if you're enjoying the podcast if you want me to do more of them if you want me to do them even more regularly maybe consider going over to patreon.com forward slash Daniel Sack and uh, becoming a patron of my work my music and podcast output um, you don't get anything special for it just knowing that I appreciate it and uh, I get to buy cool stuff like 
not just cans of tuna, but you know you get the cans of tuna with like chili flakes in there? I get to get them instead. And that's a good week for me when I've got the chili tuna rather than just the basic tuna. Anyway, let's get on with it. This is Luke Turner and me at the quietest offices in that there London. All these sirens and stuff, but it's London. Enjoy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is how we start podcasts. Yeah, it's with a bit of... <laughs> yeah, you could hear it's, it's like when, like when Portillo lost his seat, you could just hear everyone cheering mm. around in the neighborhood. It was amazing. Um, yeah, it's, Portillo's a weird one as well, because like, I, I didn't really understand what he was, and then I think as I, in the thousands, two thousands, yeah. obviously see him as a TV personality, and it's like, it doesn't quite gel with the image I had of him in the 90s. Yeah, I'm not, whether he had a bit of a change of personality or something, or... Whether he mellowed or yeah, maybe he had to something. Something definitely happened. I mean, I always get told because I like steam trains, and I occasionally wear a, <laughs> a, a, a pink linen jacket. And was like dressing like Michael Portillo. <laughs> <laughs> but that you could also apply that to Pete Waterman. He loves steam he trains. Yeah, well, he loves all trains, and uh, he's got big ones as well. He, he? must. Yeah, probably. Do you see the thing last week about the um, there was the, the the model railway layout got smashed by a load of kids. Really? Like thousands of pounds of damage. And, um, uh, oh, Mod, Rod Stewart, Rod Stewart. Uh, donated 10,000 quid towards the fund to replace it. Oh, wow. And I did an article for The Guardian about model railways and why. Yeah. Because I mean, they kind of got wind that I, I was into them. And I wrote a, just a very short piece about, you know, the significance of model railways and, and, and masculinity. Mm. 
and it just went nuts. I've never, it was really interesting. It really touched a nerve with people about mm. you know what the what these things these layouts signify in terms of community. And you know, I wrote that you know some of the things that got smashed probably like some engine shed built by Bill who died ten years ago. Yeah. That's your way of remembering him. And it was it was interesting to see how that really connected with a lot of people. I got emails from people with pictures of their engines. It's <laughs> great. It's <That's> awesome. <laughs> it's it's a funny one because it like it feels like something that maybe will die out over time like uh, yet I don't know it's like an expression of fantasy and um, yeah. boys don't get as many it's not as acceptable to fantasise and that was a, a more uh, engineering constructed way but you still fantasise it still is I mean that's the thing you know it, it, <coughs> it was about creating narratives you know, I'd, I'd, like, yeah. when I had a train set you know, I'd, I'd have my train set and it would go through a whole historical cycle and mm. I'd have people inhabiting it and you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't just this sort of I think a lot of these male pursuits are really pigeonholed as being either aggressive or geeky mm. or you know, just anoraki and all this sort of stuff and actually what's going on is a lot more complex yeah. you know, I, mean, I, was, I was never able to play sport I was useless but I think you know, for a for, for people who play football, there's there's a whole world of fantasy. They're playing their character. They're playing their yeah. favorite footballer when they're playing football. I remember as a kid, like just kicking a, a ball against a wall, and I would still have that, you know, imaginary match that's going on yeah, in yeah. my head. You know, I, I think maybe maybe for if you're growing up now, you have things like Minecraft and all that, which are actually quite deep fantasies. You can build such amazing things, but. I don't know, I suppose there's something solitary about living inside a computer that, yeah. that maybe maybe has negative connotations. Yeah, well. never, I always sort of think, because I've never been into gaming, we just couldn't afford a computer when I was a kid, so I didn't... That's our generation particularly. Yeah, yeah it was, there was a real split between yeah. people who had like a ZX Spectrum, who were the kind of the rich kids really, and then mm. the rest of us. And you, I'd go around to people's houses and a lot of the games I thought were really boring, Yeah, I understand it. Um, so I was never really into gaming except for I had one tank game eventually in my 20s that I just got totally addicted yeah. to a really realistic turn-based tank yeah. game. But I found that too all-consuming. Yeah. Um, there's, there's definitely, like, um, the nostalgia for that era of gaming. There's a lot of people our age now who uh, have established themselves in the games industry. There's a company called No Code up in Glasgow. I think they're Glasgow. But they made a game recently which was basic you're in a room playing a ZX Spectrum, but it's a, a narrative, four hour long narrative oh, about, wow. and it's kind of done in that um, text adventure way. But what they're actually dealing with is is loss and guilt and tragedy. But you don't realize it at first, you're just sort of engrossed, oh, it's mysterious, oh, it's like Stranger Things in a way. Oh, yeah. And then by the end of it, you're just like, oh, that's like amazing. panicked and I was really upset when I finished it. I was really? I like it was like a thirty minute sit down. It was like after watching Requiem for a Dream for the first time for me. It was just like okay, yeah. Okay, I'm but it's, it's like anything, isn't it? Gaming is it, 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 it I get so frustrated with the, the kind of binary times we live in a lot a lot of the time. Is that anything can be incredibly positive and incredibly negative? It's like yeah. you know the game. Yeah, Gamergate was was horrific, and there's obviously a huge element of 
the world around games which is really toxic but then mm. there's also the actually the positivity it must have for a lot of people where it's a way of connecting with yeah. others and, and, and using imagination weirdly so like in, in the Gamergate communities that still exist there are genuinely groups of people who, who believed it was about ethics and journalism mm. and they they think that there's these little cul-de-sacs of people who are like fighting against capitalism in gaming and trying to fight That's this and that and they come out of the it's, it's, it's dangerous to call it a lie but the lie <laughs> that Gamergate was based on Gamergate was based on so it's, it's really interesting how we get those deep negatives that then become grey and and that's what I'm fascinated by is grey areas at the moment. Yeah. Particularly when it comes to discussions around masculinity. Because mm. I don't think there is any perception of grey areas in masculinity at the moment. I find it I find it interesting that that Railway article did very well. I found it interesting that I wrote a piece about Sleaford Mods and mm. how they're utterly pigeonholed as being this sort of like angry old bloke band. And I'm like, you look at Sleaford Mods live, well, you know, just generally... The, the man who makes the beats is gay. Mm. The singer is the, one of the campest frontmen I've ever seen. It's 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 really not just macho at all. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just, but people quickly go bang. That's 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 sort of one particular type of white, you know, angry man, and we're going to put it in the, the toxic barrel and shove it yeah. away. And it's like, well, actually, there's a lot of nuance there. I definitely had a bit of. Um... <laughs> a little bit of cognitive dissonance when I hadn't seen them yeah. and I'd only heard them and then to see them perform and it was like oh wow this is this just seeing the performance changed my perception of the words on the page yeah. almost I find it really odd how we we've forced ourselves into these corners of what a man is what you are to live to be yet we live in a world where that Jigsaw piece doesn't actually fit in very yeah, many exactly. places, um, and it, for some reason we we're not willing to change the perception of that. We'd rather try to change what we'd rather shout at women for. Oh, you're ruining it for men. Yeah, you know, like this idea that we bring up toxic masculinity, um, but that's not that men are bad. That's meant certain behaviours that we've been brought up with aren't necessarily useful in the world we live in yet it becomes a team sport of whose side you're on you know? yeah exactly and I think it can come the other way that it's just you everything is so many things are seen as toxic without, mm. and not nuanced in any way yeah I, I think there's it just needs to have more dialogue as with everything in the world just yeah. a lot more dialogue I think that part of that is the, the way social media works as well that that we have that dopamine hit every oh, oh my god that guy retweeted yeah. oh, oh look at the likes and uh, that pushes you into these I don't know if you look at like political pundits you look at someone like I, I don't want to call him an actual journalist but Dave Rubin he he was on he was from Young Turks he was very left wing he was uh, and then he went out on his own and his audience have pushed him just further and further and further just to the give right give people what they want yeah. you know like his interview with Milo, which we'll probably talk about in a bit, but got more views, so he, he went even further. Yeah. And, and then now he's in this weird place where, I've left the left. So, well, you've just gone where the money was. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. You've gone for that dopamine hit, which also happens to have a large 
pot of gold at the end of it. Yeah. Now, did you see there was somebody did an analysis looking at the order of people have liked things on Facebook? That was amazing. It's incredible just how people are led into yeah. deeply unpleasant places from somewhere <coughs> quite mild. You know, somewhere that was quite a, quite a normal position to be in, or middle of the road position to be mm. in, just got led away. And I, and like I thought that, that was from he was like following the local uh, African barbers yeah. to how he gets from there to Fox. To Breitbart, to, to, to really far out, like, nasty stuff. It was incredible to to sort of see how that, that happens. But I think there's also there's often not enough uh, consideration to be to how you stop, how you make people go the other way. Mm. You know, and I do think there's a lot of anger directed at men, and I understand why. It's, it's fair enough. It's sort of centuries worth of frustration yeah. and rage coming forth I can also see how because men are in a position of immense privilege and haven't been told this f- stuff before mm. unless you have a fairly thick skin and uh, accepting of receiving that blast it's going to push you in other it can push you away I think yeah. that's part of the it, it, it's, it's how how that that kind of interaction and that energy is, is handled mm. so the men aren't Push, sort of push themselves into even worse positions. Yeah. I, it, it's awkward as well because we talk... When you're trying to talk, I don't want intellectually, air quotes, about a subject, you're not talking about men as in the individuals who are hearing this message. You're talking about this nebulous concept. Mm. And, and people find it really... Because we want it to be black and white. They can't separate the two ideas and it becomes this... Not all men. No, we know. We're saying not all men. Yeah, but then sometimes I do hear people say, yes, all men. Yes, (laughs) yes, You know, the way that 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 kind of not all men has become a sort of like a lol thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel that's not, you know, obviously not not all men, but then it's it's, it's, it's a really kind of pretty difficult term that I always find just that not all men concept Mm. within itself. Because, you know, I would look at that and go, I spent my entire life largely avoiding men. That mm. I've I've been at the total wrong end of toxic masculinity, <laughs> and abusive masculinity. Yeah, uh, and it's quite hard when when you're in that position to suddenly be told you're as bad as the people who, or you feel like you're being told you're yeah. as bad as the people who have wronged you. Well, I think you, you can you can think you're different, and then someone says something, and you're like, I, I might have actually done that, oh, <laughs> and, yeah, and then absolutely. you're suddenly like. Yeah. Questioning yourself. Yeah. Talking about questioning yourself, let's talk about your book. <laughs> yeah, look at that. That's a segue. That was a good segue. That was. It took us twelve minutes. <laughs> it's all right. I'll edit that down to eleven and a half minutes. <laughs> I, can, I tend to just go in. It's easier. Um, so you've just written. Uh, when did it come out? Last year? January. January this year. Yeah. Okay, so you've written a memoir um, that covers a lot you know mm. you, you you wrap it all in in the history and your relationship with Epping Forest and and just nature in general but it, it deals with faith it deals with sexuality um, exploitation of that sexuality and suede and suede you know, I've got my suede t-shirt you have, on today. You have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how is it like because you're 
day job as such is a, a critic. How was it going from that mode of critic to creator? I think in terms of a writing style, it's quite hard because mm. the particularly quietest <coughs> writing, you know, the, my, on my the website I, I co-run, we are quite sort of like bang, bang, bang. We're not very terribly objective. It's quite oh, it's subjective it's quite opinion. Journalism. It's subjective yeah. journalism. I much, but I struggle with objective music criticism. I even underlined the word subjective. subjective like, good. Right, I, yeah. I, I'm very. I, I've always, I've really struggled with objective. Well, I'm a terrible freelance music journalist because I'm not very good at objectivity. I tend yeah. to really like things or think things are deeply suspect, or I'm just not bothered. So what, yeah. what's the point of me writing about something if I'm just like, eh, yeah. whatever? Um, so it was very difficult trying to get away from that slightly. I guess pompous is a is a fair. People call <laughs> the quietest pompous all the time, and John, who I run it with, and I are like. Yeah, we're pompous, whatever. You know, my dad is a Methodist minister. I definitely, a lot of my, there's an in, huge inherited style I've got from mm. my dad from kind of three-point sermons, you know. Yeah. I, I've totally got that off him. And even when I'm doing readings, it's like, and I've watched them back, it's quite weird because it's, it's so similar to seeing the my question. dad. Uh, um, sorry. Ruined it, ruined it. <laughs> that was going to be the bit. We'll, 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 we'll get to that again in a bit. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was. I guess it was about finding... Uh, you know, the book was originally just going to be about Epping Forest, like a social history and looking a bit mm. into my family's connection with it <clears throat> and how we respond to nature and what nature means to us. And then it gradually became more and more about me. So it was quite odd then ha- ending up writing about myself and stuff that is not exactly the sort of material you, you generally broadcast to the world around yeah. sex and issues around that. Uh, but the, I kind of became aware that the more into the self I got, the better I was able to really get the points across about the other stuff. Yeah. Uh, about nature, about sexuality, and about masculinity, and about faith. So it was sort of the more of, of me I put in, the more general mm. I felt it made the book. Which the, the more subjective something is, the, the more easier it is to unpick if you know the person. You know, mm. so the more you're putting in of yourself gives, gives from my point of view at least, the, the reader a, a better understanding of what you're seeing because I'm hopefully in some way seeing it through your eyes. The book definitely, for me, did a great job of, I don't know, I grew up in Essex, so oh, right. um, we had Langdon Hills or One Tree Hill, which is a, a, a very much a smaller... Uh, wooded area, not a forest because it wasn't hunting grounds, but um, but I used that space in a, a similar way as, as something the other, something about being up there thinking as a teenager, like I was doing something different. Yeah, I'm walking past dog walkers and all this just people doing yeah. their no- ordinary life. I'm up there feeling like I'm expressing my otherness in some way which I always found odd but <laughs> the the book feels somewhat episodic is that because it comes from like we mentioned earlier you wrote a piece about Milo which was more personal was an expression of of um, exploitation that happened to you in your teens but then also the caught by the is it caught by the river? Caught by the river, yeah. Yeah. So those writings, sing, did they inspire or just speak to what you were doing? Yeah. I mean, I started writing the column 
about the forest for Caught by the River when it was going to be more a book about the forest. Mm. Uh, and then a couple of the really personal ones I did, that column got a lot more personal quite quickly because mm. I was in a mess at the time, so it was Had to inevitable. Uh, and then that was the what stuff that people really responded to. I think the episodic nature is partly because it is almost a diary of... Uh, I mean, it's, it's two years condensed into one. So that was slightly inevitable. Mm. But there was also the episode... It was interesting because one of the criticisms, some of the reviews, which would be very good, but there was a couple of essays, it's, it's repetitive. And I was like, yeah, that whole point is it, it's repetitive because yeah. it's this constant, I will go into the forest and it will make me better because that's what nature does. And just this, you know, like bashing my head against a tree almost, you know, trying to... And, and, that, and so it became very episodic and, and, and it has that rhythm of it because that's... That's what depression can mm. be like, and and that's what compulsion, uh, which the book also deals with sexual compulsion. That kind of repetitive, just keep going and keep going. You can't break a cycle. Yeah, and and that, you know, there's obviously I suppose forest cycles as well of seasonals and mm. and, and breeding and so on. So, um, so that was that was kind of deliberate. That it was this, it was like a, an episodic diary of this particular period of life. Mm. Obviously, his memory is flawed and all that, but it definitely feels like this is the truth of it, of, yeah. of how you were, rather than creating a redemption arc and this and the other and uh, selling some idea that we did it in the end. Nature fixed me. Or yeah, that was really deliberate. Yeah, which is one of the things I really liked about it because you... You allow the darkness to come in, but you could have front-loaded all the darkness and got people hooked and this is going to be... Yeah. But you didn't. You told it in a, a way that I feel like represented you rather than represented a, the idea of selling a book. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it just sort of... It, there was no other way of writing except for being really honest. Mm. And I was kind of... I didn't want to put the really honest, as in the explicit stuff, in just a shot people it wasn't into shock people at all mm. it was like I felt it had to be there to make the points and because I never ever read have read anything that was helpful to me mm. uh, around sexuality exploitation and and so on um, and I would very rarely read anything around nature that's that said hang on nature is very complicated what we see as nature I mean I, I think we are part of nature mm. um, and we and in the time of climate crisis we need to see ourselves as more and more as a part of, of nature so we can understand our involvement in these huge processes mm. um, and to sort of sentimentalize nature <coughs> is quite it's quite dodgy for me um, and and also you know the the, the, the nature cure narrative arc has, has been played out it's been it's been around for years and years and I I, I, I just found it wasn't working mm. in in that way for me and so to be honest I had to kind of Say, say that really mm. that I was finding it very complicated, and and the you know the this, the re the redemption, if there is any, comes through having a sort of relationship with the forest that involves removing <laughs> trees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I, I think it was because it was such an account of my life. But it's quite odd looking back at it now. It was so I was so mentally immersed in that both in writing the book, but also all the difficult stuff that was happening and the processes I was going through, trying to deal with things that I'd not properly dealt with mm. through being English. Yeah. <laughs> uh, guilt from religious upbringing through kind of 
not really understanding how to explore sexuality, not ever having any role models around bisexuality particularly, never feeling there were many male role models. This, in, there are so few uh, bisexual role models anyway. Yeah. You know, we've, we've got, as a culture, more comfortable with gay men. We've got more less comfortable with lesbian women. They're, they're, I, I don't think that's unfair to say. But bisexual men really don't exist in, in culture. There's so few images, mm. so ideas. And then bisexual women are just a fetish yeah, for exactly. a lot of people. Like even, even like, um, I saw Rent, the movie of it. Yeah. The bisexual woman and that is it's just, just banging everyone. And that's her entire raison d'etre. She just bangs people. people. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, that's... that's, that's <laughs> I mean, I must admit, I, I think my book probably doesn't help with the stereotype that bisexual people are just really randy and greedy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did. I mean, that is, that is one of the really difficult stereotypes. But then again, I think probably I was part of the it sort of flagrant yeah. sexual behaviour, partly because, you know, that's your role as a bisexual person. You're a threat to straight culture. Gay gay male culture is very suspicious of you all there's a massive fetishisation of bisexual men in the gay community yeah. so I found that very interesting in the way that straight men fetishise bisexual women I've met a lot of gay men who really fetishise bisexual men mm. and that that was something that it was only when I started really thinking about it and you know realising how often I played up to that fetishisation and quite to be honest mm. enjoyed it um, that it's, it's a thing that's not really talked about I've never really sort of mm. heard that discussed or explored because um, I think the gay world can be quite is wary of bisexual I mean I can see why because bisexual I call it in the book having your cock and eating it because because <laughs> you get to pass as a straight person you don't have any of the issues of you know, the, yeah, being the, out in, and visible and in, in straight well I can see why it's a bit annoying if there's these sort of bisexual men who can pass uh, but then get all of the pleasures of well, you don't get all that because I think you're, you're always slightly not welcome or not included in gay spaces mm. in a way um, and, and in communities possibly. Um, so I can see why there is that, that, that frustration and, and I can see why there's suspicion from the heterosexual side. You know, I met loads of bisexual men over the years, usually in sexual situations who are never out never out they never I'm not always would ask because I'm, I'm quite, I've got a, so I probably would have been quite a good researcher for Kinsey or something <laughs> always, you know I'm in some sort of quite fruity situation and then you'd start asking someone questions and, and, and with bisexual men it's always like oh so you out as bisexual it's just always no mm. you know, it's just so so few uh so few men are by men are and I, I read there's an amazing book called Go The Way Your Blood Beats by a guy called Michael Amherst which came out uh, just after I finished writing Out of the Woods came out I think it was yeah, last year uh, and I read that in like, an afternoon because mm. it was just like fucking, somebody's written a book about this I wish I'd read had this book when I was 16 yeah. and I've sort of been evangelising about that book because I think it's such an important more, more so than mine, really, because it's purely so focused on the bisexual experience. And I just think, oh, I wish I had that book to read when I was a teenager in the 90s, where there were no bisexual men publicly, really. I mean, like, you know, it was like David Bowie wasn't really talked about. You didn't have the... Yeah. He, he'd done the Buddha of Suburbia and was making drum and bass, but he wasn't like kind of sex Bowie at that point. No. He was kind of 
weird old musician who people weren't quite sure about what he was doing. Yeah. It wasn't like you knew he was bisexual or anything like that. And then, you know, Suede, I I really loved, because it was so obvious that there was a huge amount of fluidity around sexuality and gender there that I really mm. picked up on. And then Brett got in trouble for saying he was a bisexual man who never had a homosexual experience. I, but, I, uh, yeah, I always found the, like, ang- outrage or whatever towards that, like, like, what, what, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Yeah, why, yeah. why should he have had to? And I think it was slightly taken out of context. He was probably shooting his mouth off as he used to like, <laughs> like to do. But it's like, yeah, why should you have to? I mean, it's it, there's a there's a, a brilliant quote by uh, I think it was actually a woman wrote it. It's like bisexuals are the only people who are expected to keep sex receipts, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. Like you have to constantly prove yourself. You know, yeah. Particularly you go, if you're a bisexual man, you've got. You know, oh, you know, you're just saying you're bisexual to look good. Yeah, I haven't had sex with a man for six months. Yeah, so therefore, I'm lose yeah, my membership yeah, yeah, you card. lose your membership of the LGBT club, <laughs> which is, you know, you are the, the. I think B is definitely the the lesser, mm. the the lesser letter, but it is it is kind of like, well, you know, if I define my sexuality on the number of people I've slept with, I'm, I'm get gay as anything, but actually, it's it's always been in the in the yeah. middle. You know, I I think like in hetero normative culture or whatever we want to call it I think we're, we're only equipped to deal with one sexy issue at a time yeah. like currently <laughs> with, with, with re-approaching re and starting to deal with trans so we're, this is all we're focused on at the moment and it, it is funny we just can't cope wait what there's no. I think that's it's a really just, good point actually it's kind of you have to there has to be one you yeah. know, I think kind of gay men had that focus it's really, for a long time it's really funny it's because kind of, a lot of the early gay rights movement comes out of the trans community yeah the trans being trans community being so out and proud and and obviously we're early on so we're before like horm- not before hormones before before it was as not easy to pass as it is today but before this point so you know and that inspired a lot of the gay movement in the, yeah, the exactly. late 60s Stonewall and early 60s. Yeah. yeah. And it's just really strange that we're only now really coming to this terms of trying to get people thinking of trans as a, air quotes, normal yeah. way of life, you know? <laughs> I do like our complete inability to deal with more than one issue. Yeah, it, it's, it's odd, isn't it? Because I, I, I sort of think... I, mean, I, I think sometimes... The LGBT plus world doesn't necessarily help matters by because instead of bringing everyone together, there's always schisms. You know, mm. that you know any any progressive movement or left movement or identitarian movement loves a schism. You know, mm. so you're always going to you know there's yeah. always going to happen. There's a really good book. Um, uh, it's coming out tomorrow actually by a writer called Amelia Abram called Queer Intentions, and she writes a lot about that kind of mm. different pride groups. At each other's throats all the time. <laughs> then your your kind of corporate sellout pride, and then the kind of big money pride. Again, yeah, but we can actually change things by taking the corporations to account. Yeah. You know, and it's just that. So I guess it, it, when you've got the kind of fractionness that always happens on the left or in progressive things, it, it does probably lend itself to go. Well, we have to focus on one thing because we can't really keep it together. Yeah, and you only got to look at what's happened to, to feminism around trans transgender yeah. rights to see just how. Brutal, that but we come back to is. that black and white division thing as well. Yeah. Like there aren't very nuanced points that people are trying to discuss, and no. then if you raise, oh, you're on the wrong side you're on of the, the wrong coin, side. So yeah, exactly. Evil. And it's just really sad because I've you know I've got 
transgender friends and we have transgender writers at the quietus and we always have done um and they just want to all of them i just think want to live their lives mm. uh and nobody don't it's a lot of time people don't seem to ask the kind of trans people what they want to do there's a trans woman who actually went to school with and mm. i've written an article for the quietus about pulp um and writing about masculinity and how oppressive living in hertfordshire in the 90s was in mm. terms of its macho culture people sort of you know, the 90s of fetishizers is a great time of lols now, and I think that was a horrible decade. It was this sort of, yeah. particularly in small town post-Thatcher Britain, it was this sort of simmering nastiness. And she she messaged me on Facebook and um, saying she got a lot out of this article and saying that she was then about to uh, transition. And, and I find her really inspiring because she's an engineer working on a big London project. She's got uh, a wife and two kids. She goes to church. Um, and has had loads of support through church and, and this big engineering company in, every, in her transition. Mm. And I think that's a really positive narrative um, that is, is kind of more exciting to me than the kind of social media yeah. uh, battle to the death. Screaming that, at each other. Yeah, which is not going to change anything. And, and, and the, the social media way of doing it is, is just dropping a grenade in a room and walking away as well. Yeah. It's not, you're not even going to stay there and, and take the flag. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And that was one of the things I, find, I, mean, I, I, I found most inspiring recently is I went, um, one of the aspects of really writing the book has made me kind of a lot more comfortable around masculinity. And, you know, I was always very out as a, as a bisexual man and um, sexually explorative man. But I was a closet West Ham fan. Because <laughs> uh, I felt, thought it wasn't for me. And I used to follow it. I'd be kind of, yeah. when we got relegated. But I never, and, and I'd gone to Upton Park with my dad and I just found that the oppressive masculinity of it and the homophobia too much. I couldn't mm. cope with it. And then uh, since writing the book, I've been going back to batches and then... Um, being uh, going occasionally and hanging out with the Pride of Irons, who are the mm-hmm. LGBT West Ham group, and I wrote an article about them for the BBC, and that was just so inspiring because you've got like a, a gay men, lesbians, trans man, straight people are very welcome, mm. uh, bisexual women, and everyone's there, and they're not like activist type people; they're just sort of Essex, people East London people living their lives, and. The, the banter is incredibly problematic, bracingly so. You, you would get shocked for some of the stuff that people yeah. say. But I was just, I was just being so rewarded spending time with them and seeing how they exist within a very, very difficult context. Football yeah. is a difficult context to be LGBT+. But to see their um, in enthusiasm, their caring for each other, their understanding of somebody more old school fans and their, their kind of the language they use and not condemning people mm. uh, for it not it, it was it's just like well, this it, it's been kind of a thing that cheers me up when I see these Twitter conflagrations yeah and people being condemned or cancelled or you know that person's gone from being on our side to a complete enemy yeah. and is getting piled on because I look at these people who are going about their lives doing something they love uh, and are open about their sexuality, and, and, and I'm like, that is going to change things, not yelling at people. On yeah, the screaming, screaming at someone's rarely fixed anything. Yeah, exactly. Know? But yeah. showing someone, uh, I don't know, a positive image, that's the wrong word. It's, but, a, well, it's, it's a compassion and empathy. You know, yeah. it's the, um, you know, the, the, all the, when I wrote this piece for the BBC about supporters groups, it was interesting that none of them. 
believe in banning people from football grounds for being homophobic. They mm. believe in sort of telling them off, but then getting them to come and meet LGBT people to have a conversation. Yeah. And I was even like, um, there was one of the Gay Gooners group was in... Uh, the Gay Gooners. Gay Gooners. They've all got great names. Uh, the, um, uh, it was in Baku for the, the final and they heard homophobic abuse from an Arsenal fan and he went and called it out. And, yeah. and the bloke apologised and said that you've actually given me something to think about. Mm. And some of the straight people I've met who come to Pride of Irons have said the same thing. This has changed my perspective yeah. on gay people. And it was just like, this, this, is, this is incredible. In the, 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 it that, is. That, it's that... It's that. Um, I think I, I I always see it as like uh, about changing the coding. Like we we do it in cinema and all that. We have certain things like oh, well, this guy's gay coded. You know, Disney villains. How many of them are are gay men? Like just yeah. coded in that. Like evil gay English. Thing. Yeah, but I love those characters though. I know. I so <laughs> love. Like it's it's open. It's just widening widening the definition to that point where someone isn't seeing oh wait that guy sucks dicks that's no different to me yeah you know that that isn't something that separates him from me entirely that's just one thing I may like and he may not or vice versa but that we're more the same than different yeah I'm not everybody poops yeah yeah exactly I mean I do think that's something around sex education that's really important and why it should start younger is because I think a lot of straight supposedly straight men have had phases when they've been attracted to men. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot more, I think, out of, if, if we're going to have a numbers competition of how many people there are, I think there's a lot more B people than there are <laughs> lesbian, yeah. gay or straight people. I think I think bisexuality is massive. It's, it, and, it's, it's, and again, it comes down to that binary thing of like, there, there are, I know, a lot of men who have experimented, would still consider themselves heterosexual, but know that, in some way, that was something they wanted to try, and when, oh no, this is awkward. I'm not, I'm yeah. not a fan, you know, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. But like, you don't know you don't like something until, until you're giving you, it a go. Give it a I go. Mean, there's an interesting thing around like, um, uh, see, I think it was in Michael Amherst's book, <coughs> the "Go the Way Your Blood Beats," but about you know, in prisons or military situations or all male environments where men start having sex with each other, and they, you know, they, they call it homosexual. Mm. Um, and he says well actually are those people is it because there isn't anybody else or is it because they're just repressed bisexuals and (laughs) they're in in an environment where they can form bonds with other men and then there's a sexual outlet for that and and actually they're bisexual all along it's just Bisexuality is so so repressed and you're you're, because you're pushed into a binary you know I knew Mm. I, I kind of for a long time, I kept tr- not trying to be gay, that's the wrong way of putting it, but going, I'm really open to the idea that I might be a gay man. Am I, particularly with a religious upbringing, am I just a massively repressed homosexual? It mm. would totally make sense that I was a massively repressed homosexual because of religious upbringing and so on. Uh, but I, and, and that was actually quite damaging. It was, mm. was trying to force myself into, I'd try and be in a, you know, completely heterosexually minded way of being or try to be homosexually minded and the more I tried to be straight or gay the more it was very very toxic mm. um, and again it was only writing the book uh, in a way that picked through that I think yeah yeah like um, 
I suppose that you, you, you bring up religion and I think it's important to say that your the way you treat religion throughout the book is with love. Is kind mm. of, you you're not blaming God, you're not blaming your parents for the way you feel. You know, you you definitely um I don't know, like we we live in again the black and white religion is bad thing mm. and you definitely go to a lot of not effort that's the wrong word but you show it as a loving thing as a diverse community as you know I, I find it I find it really reflective of the way you know we've our internet atheists it's just so aggressively exclusionary of not just faith so many of them end up gra- gravitating to uh anti-feminism anti and it's really odd to me that we've we've put religion in a in a box of this is to be disparaged this only has bad now i can you know as an atheist i can argue there are these bad points in religion but that doesn't mean to get excise religion for society it's about changing that Arsenal fans' perception of what it is to be gay, it's the same with the religion. It's about it evolving into something that fits with something, the truth of society. Exactly. I mean, and that's the, the funny the thing I always find odd about religion is people sort of, the fundamentalist in the modern era of, of, of any faith, mm. but you go, you, your faith has been evolving for thousands of years and is yeah. markedly different from how it was when it was at its instigation, why can it not continue evolving? Well, what, that's the thing. You know, it, the whole point is it, it evolves. I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the big schism in the Protestant English church <coughs> happened because the king wanted to go and bang another woman, <laughs> you know, and, and you're telling me that yeah. homosexuality is a sin. Now, come on, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and, and, but it was, again, it was a, it was a very it's natural that, thing that the book ended up being positive about religion because... Mm. It was that was my truth is that it gave me love, my politics because Methodism was you know so rooted in British socialism. Yeah, you know, Marxists hate Methodism because they think it stopped. Well, some Marxists, some some there's lots of Marxist Methodists. There's loads. Of there is a, there's yeah. a Marxist argument that uh, you know Methodism stopped there being a revolution in 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 England like unlike in Europe. Um, and I always saw a lot of tolerance of around sexuality in my dad's church, mm. um, even if I might have disagreed with my parents on other aspects of sexuality. So there was no way I was going to condemn it. And, you know, I, I, I accept atheist viewpoints as I would Islam, mm. Islamic viewpoints or Buddhists or whatever. It, it, but it was that kind of the oppressive nastiness of the kind of two, mid 2000s a, a, a atheist movement. Yeah, I just was like, "Come on, you're worse than you're, you're worse than a lot of Christian I, the extremes of Christianity." I genuinely think if I had like got into say Dawkins, I would have probably found religion by now. Yeah, because because he, he's so dogmatic. He's so yeah. like doesn't. I don't know how he can not wake up and look in the mirror and go, "Hang on, I'm just selling I'm, a different version I'm, of religion." The same thing, yeah. You know? I mean, and I, I do find it very interesting that there's there's something shifting now. Mm. I mean, since I, 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 it's one of these things you write a book and you don't kind of realise what it's about. And I hadn't realised the book was quite a lot of it was about religion. Mm. Um, and a lot of the conversations I've had uh, since it came out have been about more nuanced approaches to faith. 
And at the weekend, I was doing a, a conversation with David Keenan, um, a Scottish author, uh, about our books, but that went mm. on to faith. And we were both talking about how we see a change now. And, you know, he was making a good point that faith inspires awe. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, science and faith shouldn't be divisible. Mm. You know? um, awe is at the core of, 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 of both, both of them. So, I mean, I still have huge issues around because brilliant um, Christianity, but it's usually the practitioners, not necessarily the, co- the core of what it is or the peace yeah. you can feel at Evensong or, you know, how liberating it can be and how radical it can be politically. Mm. Um, with, you know, when you, you can see that happening. The thing for me with, with faith in general is, is remembering the, the books, the tomes, the writings are generally written by humans. So yeah, exactly. if, if your way of waking up in the morning and having a relationship with a deity differs from that books, that's fine. That's fine. Because yeah. those books differ from what, you know, yeah. it's like the can't eat meat on a Friday stuff. It's like, well, that, that, this has changed. And if it's allowed to change... Your version is allowed to yeah. change. Yeah, I mean, it's things like you know the Abrahamic religions saying pork and 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 shellfish uh, are forbidden. It's like well, yeah, they would come from you know, hot countries before refrigeration. You don't yeah. want to eat pork and shellfish in yeah. in a hot country before refrigeration because you're probably going to die. Yeah, you know, I think we could possibly now we have pork and ref- uh, we have refrigeration. We can uh, you, we, we can maybe reassess this. And you know, and and actually, you do, there's a, a, a movement in the Jewish community community to to bring pork in oh is that yeah you get uh um i think david Badil was talking about it a little while back because every time he's on tour he, he likes to fry up doesn't he, he loves to fry up yeah. and he gets it every single time like, oh you've got bacon you're not a good jew and it's like <laughs> no it's it's fine yeah. <laughs> like, but yeah um how was it to record the audiobook really hard uh, so I hadn't actually read the book when I, I finished it mm. and I it was like this sort of humming mm. item of terror in, <laughs> on, my, so, on my computer for, for, for me like music the music I've written the recorded thing is a step on the way that's the bit everyone thinks is the finished article but the finished article is that in Stoke playing it to 90 people yeah. that one time you get everything right and the oh that was great you know was there an element of did you want to change what you had written as you were reading it well all the spelling mistakes and bad <laughs> sentences and repetitions that I spotted but <laughs> but no I mean there's there's a the guy who I was recording with was amazing he was really he obviously has guided a lot of mm. emotionally fraught authors through the process but no, I felt very proud of some bits, and I was kind of like, you know, it was actually quite gratifying to be honest, to read some bits and go, whew, that is, mm. I've not read that since I wrote it, but that is really, really good, you know. When, when I did the, the final writing, I was sort of in the middle of nowhere, actually in the middle of a wood, in just staying in a shed, <laughs> and I went into some very, it was very strange, I was just in a, like, no internet, no phone, um, just in a real deep within space to be able to get some of the stuff out and some of it when I was reading it was like oh where did that come from mm. um, and that was very interesting just learning about kind of intuitive writing I suppose but I know what you're saying about the when you you know kind of playing to 90 people with Stoke Webber and I was doing doing events that's been yeah. the one rather than recording the audio book but like doing readings mm. uh, 
and particularly a re- I did work with an mu- amazing musician called Spaceship Mark, mm-hmm. who's who I met in the forest, and he does field recordings and plays synth drones. And we've mm. done we've I've done an edited sort of excerpts of the book which he plays behind, and that is because it's kind of a bit more performancey mm. and you, feeling that like songs for Drella, but less yeah 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 <laughs> less painful it, for to but it really is it's an odd feeling when you can when you're kind of using words in a performance way I mean it's not it's not it, performance maybe is a slightly grand way of saying it but but that almost feels like a kind of really pure way into yeah. the book so because obviously I I read the book. Um, but I, I really struggle with reading and keeping it, keeping focused on the book, mm. especially a book that like there's some, there's definitely parity, you know, uh, similar events in our youths that led to similar behaviours towards sex in our formative and grown up years. So obviously I'm reading a thing and then that will trigger me off to somewhere else. And uh, I picked up the audio book. And it was just, it's so much easier to focus in for me on oh, your expression. Because the, then I'm not putting like my timing on it. So the, when you do a joke or a funny line, it's coming from you. And it's in, instantly funnier. Um, there's nothing, what was it? Nothing like a pounding from a plumber. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that level on... I, I, that one of the things I really hadn't realised that was that the book was going to be funny. I, I, I was quite worried that it was it was really much too bleak as a book. Uh, but, this, but the humour in it isn't the humour that you would have used as a shield before that. The humour in that is there is a joke here that, and it naturally happens rather than stay away from this emotional thing. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I, mean, I, I think I, I wrote in the when I wrote a quiet article about Milo and I write about it in the book, is the, that using humour... The care in the community. Yeah, like, you know, yes, noshing off pensioners <laughs> and finding care in the community. It's using humour to, it's to, to hide that. that. Yeah, it worked really well for a while as a mm. kind of means of deflecting just actually that's, that's really grim. But um, I think I have a really... I don't know whether it's a, a British thing, but that kind of really bleak... Probably a bit wrong, problematic sense of humour mm. is. I've always loved that kind of very, very bracing humour. That and, and I think that, that I guess therefore it, it came out in the book. Um, I, I, I never. I thought. I guess that is. It's nothing like offer of a pounding from a plumber to make you feel totally alone. Mm. It is a good mm. line. But I hadn't thought it was <laughs> that funny. Was, I think it's in <laughs> the first chapter, maybe first second chapter. Second chapter. Yeah. And I, I remember like there was. Um, I text my partner just immediately. That line is going to be a good day. <laughs> oh, that's, <You> know, good. <laughs> that's good. That's like, good. This one of the things I've really enjoyed about this whole podcast thing of like picking through the research for people, and you, I, you always have a perception of someone based on one thing. Like you, in my mind, are. Luke from the Quietus, you know, and then to find these little things, and then to dig and hear you like on the Guardian podcast where you're walking around the woods, yeah, and you do a bit of a reading, and it was really nice to hear the difference in performance between those things. I don't know. It's I was really it's the f- second audiobook I've ever listened to as oh, well. Right. So it's you and Partridge, 
Really? Amazing. Well, there is... I mean, obviously, Partridge is, is, is a huge influence. But there's, like... The yeah, way my, friend, my friend told me, there's a bit when I said my favourite record was Queen Greatest Hits 1, she was like, you can't pull that in, it's so Partridge. And I was like, it has to go in, because, you know, I love... Uh, one of the things I think about Partridge is he, why he's a brilliant character, is because he's quite relatable, as people say. Yeah. There is aspects of Partridge... I've met is like I've met that guy. Yeah. I mean, like growing up in Essex as well, like Essex and Norfolk. Yeah, that's they, true. There's a lot of especially the more affluent bits of Essex when you're getting out into the countryside. Yeah. You meet so many partridges, unintentional partridges, just surround you yeah. every day. But, but there is there there is the the kind of I'd say not not the the, the rum side of partridge, <laughs> but because there is a humanity when when partridge works. That's why I think that not all the partridge series necessarily work. No. When when you get the humanity of partridge, mm. that's when it's when he's not just being awful. Then he's just like he, he, yeah. I think um, he, he doesn't work as a character. The the yeah. intro to um, Alpha Papa where he's just singing along to Rochford. Yeah, it's this weird moment of like. Like, you, you want to laugh at him. But, but you've been there. But you've been there. You've been <laughs> yeah. in that joyful moment. And, okay, that Roachford for him is me listening to, you know, I don't know, Nine Inch Nails yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. But it's still that same... And then there's an article. I was, I was hoping there was going to be more music in the last series because mm. um, I was going to write an article about that, about, you know, Partridge as being, a, you know, the, he's, a, he's a genuine... He loves what he loves. He's, a, he's like the antithesis of that kind of idea of guilty pleasures. You know, Partridge yeah. loves his music, and I think you should be like that. You know, yeah. that's, that's the way you should be. You know, if, if music means a lot to you, don't be guilty about it. Just, just embrace it. Mm. Now, we've all wanted to be there, wearing leather pants and a pair of traffic cones, gyrating <laughs> to our favourite music on a stage. You know, yeah. that's it, Partridge nails that. I mean, I've, I've wanted to do that. <laughs> I, I don't know a person who hasn't. Yeah, exactly. You know? That's why it's that's, good. That's why it works. That's why how my funeral's going to be done. <laughs> Handing out cone bras. On Amazing. The, on the door. Yeah. Um, this actually t- can we talk a bit about the quietus as well? Yeah, 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 yeah sure. You're, you're yeah. up for that. Just uh, I know we're kind of pivoting, but the, by the book, listeners, <laughs> do you want to? You can say the name of it. Out of book. the Woods. Yeah, of do the woods. do do buy it from your local independent bookshop. Actually, talking about names. Yeah. Before I'd read a synopsis or a single thing in my head, the book was called Out in the Woods. Ah, and I just literally thought this is just going to be sodomy in the woods. <laughs> like, like the hot, like that was because I just put conflated that one word, and yeah. I just thought this was just going to be. Just, That's interesting. Like, and sorry then, to disappoint. There was, there was, there was, it wasn't quite enough sodomy. But like before, because I, I, I got the book before I asked you to come on, obviously because it would be irresponsible be to do otherwise. Yeah, and I was like, what? He's really was that? And then it, out of the woods. Oh, okay. And then as soon as I looked, I was like, oh, oh, it's, di- it's different to what I thought. Excellent. <laughs> well, I am working with, I'm curating a load of the Wolf and Forest Borough of Cultures um, program relating to <laughs> Epping Forest. And we are doing a queer rave called Out in the Forest, um, which an amazing artist called Ed Webb Ingle is putting together kind of, um, for us, which is going to be a celebration of queerness in nature mm. um, and kind of evoking Midsummer Night's Dream and we're going to have performances and, and, and try and bring the forest to a sort of grotty um, industrial estate in Leighton. So <laughs> there is, the, the, you know, there, there's the, but, that, but that's the whole point of forests today. I think they are in fascinatingly queer spaces mm. uh, and, and nature is as well. Like they're kind of like the lone enraptured male, as somebody brilliantly described it, of the kind of 
you know, straight man striding forth to conquer territory is, mm. you know, which has been the, the kind of defining trope of nature culture for centuries, really, since the Romantics is is ought to be very subverted because it, nature forests are. I think I said forests are bisexual at one point. You know, tree trees is very fluid yeah. sexually. Tr- forests, trees, all of a lot of nature is. We I, it's the. There is this very um, gay imagery in masculinity. There's so much, like like uh, the German label international G- DJ. Oh yeah, yeah. Like it was always they would use Schwarzenegger and all that. Yet they came up through. I can never say it. Bergheim. Bergheim. Yeah. The, but that's where they came up. They came up through this queer space. Yet Schwarzenegger was the. The peak of masculinity. There's a there's a Swedish racist Nazi guy called um, the Golden One on YouTube. He is the biggest like Herculean gay icon possible. <laughs> you know, yet he's he's so like homophobic. It's always the de- de- degeneracy. Yeah. Is thing. Yet, like every time he he'll come on camera and he'll flex before he that's, that's amazing. You know, he'll talk about. How he, he should be allowed to give the Roman salute as the Nazi right, salute yeah. was, and all this, and like at the same time, you, he is just like just but, a bit of oil uh, on him yeah. and a pole. And See, it, it, well, I don't know about the state of Swedish forest <coughs> cruising areas, but I can just imagine him popping out from behind a bush <laughs> with his with his cock out. <laughs> they're always they're, you know they're, they're, the, the more homophobic the person, the, yeah. the usually. The more little secrets they have, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the Esquietus. Sorry, went on a tangent. There. <laughs> um, so the the Quietus for people who don't know um, is probably like the most unapologetic of web journalism. Like, not just web. You know what I mean. Um, but like we said earlier, it's completely subjective, honest, and. Is just doing what it wants to do, rather than what it has to do or what it sees others do. How are you? How are you finding it now after what is it? Eleven years, ten years? Eleven years now. Yeah. Um, to keep it going when there's probably easier ways to make money. Yes, anything would be easier. <laughs> I mean, that's the. It, we have been so many people closing now. You know, mm. like um, that. And that's because it's pretty much impossible to keep an independent publication that used to be funded by advertising going in the climate where Facebook and Google have basically come and sucked all of the money out of... Because ads have become so much more targeted now. Yeah, exactly. And and Facebook can say, we can reach these exact people. And Google can say, well, these people have searched for this, so we can present them in the ads. And it is 90% of ad revenue has gone Mm. to those massive corporations. And I think that's very worrying, given what those what those corporations are doing to things like democracy. And there's also uh, a certain element of your you're known for um, your music content. So the people who are there, if if you're promoting someone's new album, the people who are engaging with your site are, are probably the people who already know that so and so's album's out. Yeah, you, but you, I think I think that's the, the the thing that quite started off as more generalist music magazine and I think we've gone further and further left field really mm. in, in, in the past 11 years because partly because that's where the exciting stuff's happening is underground and that's what we're into mm. so I think there's there's a 
an element where actually people are kind of coming to us to find the weird things. I mean, we do our albums of the year every year, 100 mm-hmm. records that we've loved in the office. And people are always like, oh, are you making all this stuff up? You know, we don't, yeah. we don't really have much in common with other lifts. It's usually about 5%, 10%. And I think people think we're trying to show off or be like, oh, we, we think you'll find we know about all the obscure music. And, and it's not that yeah. at all. I, I've always hated that kind of, you know... Oh well, the, the best version of that song is the very rare Peel version of that uh, the, that song. It's, I, I can't stand that kind of yeah. that that squishing stuff into your own precious niche. I, I believe that people can appreciate anything, and it's, we're just sort of conditioned or, or forced by algorithms or, or or whatever into liking certain things. I think people are a lot more open-minded yeah, to weirdness as, as than than we give them credit for. And so it's always about sort of celebrating stuff that people won't necessarily have heard of. Yeah. You know. Um, it's, it's, it, but it's that thing of like, you did a, I don't know, a, the low recordings, just a, a selection of stuff. Oh, the yeah, recordings. yeah. And it, it was an interesting one because I did a little bit of that. Well, you missed out Vincent Oliver off loaf recording. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and then at the same time, I was like, yeah, but I actually I never listened to the chat record. Yeah. And that, you know... I think we're, when uh, you walk into a, a record shop and say, you've got an album like this, and they get it wrong, is actually usually more valuable to you than if they yeah. get get the spot on exact, you know, it's something that algorithms don't do very well. Cause, yeah, because algorithms just lead you to more of what you're into, which is really depressing. I want to find things that are perplexing and might might you know I, I like drawing parallels like connections between things that are unex, that are unexpected you know mm. and, and that's the only and I, and I don't think algorithms can do that yet no, algorithms wouldn't lead you I don't think from listening to Enya's watermark to Laurel Halo or Chris Carter from Throbbing Gristle mm. yeah I think there's a massive connection between yeah. the two there is something there is there is something there that I can explain in writing that an algorithm can't do and that's yeah. why I I had this thought the other day of of how why don't algorithms lead you from hip hop to soul like and actually Enya when you think about it Enya should also lead you to the Fugees yeah you know just because of that sample but obviously that would still apply sonically there's yeah Um, how do you knowing that you're building a really difficult situation for yourselves how do you continue that way what, like do you get the temptation to pivot to video and yeah I mean the, the pivot to video thing was was ridiculous that was a few years ago, a few now, years ago everyone suddenly sacked the big company sacked all their writers and mm. and spent a lot of money making video and then we're like oh nobody's watching it and that was because Facebook had told them what your and, and Google and YouTube had all said oh you know what what you what you want to do is make video they hadn't told them that you know nobody watches more than the first 10, 10 seconds, mm. uh, but people do maybe sit through five seconds of an advert, so it looks good on the advert figures. Yeah, and you know we can't afford to pivot to video. Video is really expensive, and we we've, we've made video. I mean, I made a series about musicians and their underground musicians and their their hobbies, like cozy funny tutti, um, uh, uh, vegetable gardening, and um, Steve Ingram from Crass on a lifeboat, and Stephen Morris from New Order and his military vehicles. Mm. But that's not stuff you can sell to a brand, you no. know, because it, it's the people we tried. I mean, we actually did it with Lush in the end because they're a brand who kind of understand 
left field culture, yeah. which is, and we've worked with them because of that. But most brands are like, what? You know, unless you're kind of targeted at Snapchat generation, mm. which we're very much not. We never have been. The, the weird thing is, as well, the people who have survived and succeeded in the, that pivot to video have been individuals. Like, there's mm. a lot of YouTube creators who probably got fired in the purge because it didn't just happen in the music industry it happened across journalism who then set out on their own and because you have that parasocial relationship that connection to an individual it's far easier for you as an individual to support like you can support a YouTuber in the same way you support a band yeah but it's far harder to support a brand in that way and even though the quietest have more akin to an indie band than they do a corporate entity you because of just having a brand because of having a nice logo and people don't connect in that quite same personal way yeah it's in, it's interesting that because we you know with what what's helped keep us going in the absence of ad revenue is people's donating every month mm. um, and I think that's a hardcore of people who really appreciate what we do and, and it's always lovely when we're going to festivals and stuff to meet people who read the site yeah, and that's so. And that's what keeps us going, really. Is people saying, "No, you can't, you can't stop doing it." Because mm. what we what we're going to do? Where do we find music? And and that's really lovely to hear. But it is a, it's. I think it's it's frustrating because yeah, when I I deleted my Facebook because I was like, why am I on this platform that's kind of destroying culture? Everything. everything. <laughs> you know, why am I contributing? I and mean, I kind of I, I wish more people would delete Facebook. You don't need to see pictures of somebody you haven't spoken to for 20 years who you went to school with as a child. You know, mm. you don't need that. Um, and I miss out on all sorts of... There's loads of gigs happen. I'm like, oh, right, oh, I'd like to have gone to that. Or <laughs> friends' birthday parties. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm completely ignorant of... That's that's frustrating, but I kind of wish more people would, would remove mm. the Facebook from their lives. I mean, I'm still on Twitter, but I, I like Twitter. Uh, it's a great way of communicating. If you have a very long mute list, it stops being aggrav- aggravating. Yeah. Just mute loads of words about politics, and and if there's loads of funny stuff, and I discover music through Twitter, and yeah, I I don't so tend on. to engage with people who have found me through searching, yeah, or have found me through like a retweet or whatever. Because nine times out of ten, it will be just someone. And I've, my experience is so much better now. I've just stopped. Like when someone says, "You're wrong," going, "Yeah, you just, you just go, right? Right? yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's fine. I'm allowed. I'm allowed to be wrong." And um, what I find interesting about the Quietus is I, I didn't know this till the other day um, that it came out of being fired. <laughs> like yeah. it came out of setting up a website for a, a brand and then them saying, "What is this shit?" Essentially. How was it to take that, like someone saying you're doing it wrong, and go, no, no, we're doing it right, and then run with it? Yeah, I think it's, um, John and I were both, when that happened, we were both going through fairly horrendous personal situations, Mm. you know, John had just given up drinking, I was getting divorced, and we didn't have anything else, I mean, like, no no one would employ us to write anyway mm. I and mean, I'd given up I was doing admin before the quiet so I was doing admin job at the Natural History Museum mm. um, and I think we ha- we didn't have anything else it was like I would have literally had to go and kind of start our working lives doing something else all over again mm. And but we really believed that we had something that people would, could care about 
and we believed that the music we love wasn't being served by other places. Um, I think interestingly now there are a lot of places, uh, sites, really good sites covering the sort of music we're into. We've never really seen this sort of like rivals or anything so I think what everybody does is very different but it's been really pleasing in the past 10 years to see kind of weirder music push out there a lot mm. more. I think there's a bit of a counter flow against that at the moment because the kind of optimism is very much the dominant ideology and mm. you know underground music is a bit pushed marginalized again because pop music as a vehicle for political issues is is back which I think in some ways is very positive mm. in others I find it a bit frustrating because there's tons of great margin work being done on the margins that it's just very hard yeah for it to get out there um that that is the hard for it to get out there has been kind of the the last decade it's, you see people at the more extremes who you know oh Spotify aren't paying enough well I buy merch so well yeah but that that guy can't even afford to make t-shirts yet yeah yet he's making something beautiful yet you know that's the thing that constantly scares me with it you know that there are so few places that have a platform to promote something that you may never have heard of. Because at the end of the day, for the enemy, why would you write about bizarre left field German tape looper? Because there's no link juice in that. There's no. Yeah. Oh, I used the phrase link juice. That's good. I like link juice. Oh, that's a good but yeah, it's a good yeah. <laughs> it used to be um, SEO juice. Yeah, I think that's. I, I, I guess I want to see the point in doing it. If you were, I mean, yeah, you, you can see that on all a lot of other music sites and culture sites. There's so much clickbait stuff. You know, the yeah. stuff they know is going to go viral. I don't know sites employ people specifically to look for viral. Things, but if somebody comes to the quietest through something that's viral and very mainstream, uh, they're probably not going to stick around for the for the weird stuff. You know, yeah. like, you know, there's certain sites where they, you know, not so much now, but when he was always in the news, anything Kanye West ever did, they would write a news story on it, and it was just clickbait. But mm. if we did that, um, or imagine if they did that, what? Where does where do those people go? You know, and I'd rather have that. You know, quiet. It's, it's weird. It, it, it's been very word of mouth the way mm. it, the site is built. Particularly, you know, there was a time where our traffic was going up and up and up, and then there was a tweak in algorithms for, for, by Facebook, and then traffic went bong. And I was really worried that we'd gone crap or something. And then I talked to lots <laughs> of other people, and they said the same. And artists were saying the same. Like, I talked to bands, and they were like, We used to get so much engagement through Facebook, and it's gone. Yeah. And that's because Facebook wanted to make you pay for it. They mm. made everybody think, Oh, this is wonderful free service. And mm. then you know, strategically, it was brilliant. Everybody got hooked on it. Oh yeah, and, and then you then they took away the the dopamine, and you had to then pay yeah. for it. Weirdly, like I I um, had Darren Hemmings, who's a digital marketer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he's still to to this very day the most the best way to market if you're a band or whatever is to get a mailing list. This thing that we've all the old school thing. Yeah, just quite. This has got a mailing list, but we never use it. We ought to make use. But <laughs> we're quite rubbish at that. It's that weird thing of like it's just someone went to the effort of sat giving you their email address. Yeah, they're probably going to go at the effort of clicking the link as long as it's not every day. Yeah, I, there's some some people I've signed up for the mailing list, and it's like a week later, and I'm like, nope. 
I'm not having 10 emails from you, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't get many emails, don't get me excited. <gasps> Is this... Oh, no. No. I'm <laughs> still not relevant. Um, <laughs> um, I, think, I think we've kind of had a, a good nap. Yeah, there. that's been yeah. good. Um, well, thank you. Like, thank you very much, Dan. Genuinely, like, the book... I didn't know what to expect. I tried to avoid... I try like everything, you try to avoid spoilers and stuff. And it was really nice. I know it's there's there's dark points, but there is something just at its core that has love to it. You know? Oh, thank you. So I genuinely appreciated it as well. And um I still can't get the pop I can't do it out of my head but you guys will have to read it to find out to what find out what, the, is. what is the pop yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go it's it's done it's over uh, I hope you enjoyed that um, it was a weird one for me a little I think I got a little more nervous with this one than I have pretty much any of the others and, and partially because when I still made music as a job I think I was a little more mainstream. I don't think we were something that really would have ever quite graced the pages of the choirs. So, like, in my head, I had built up that kind of musical snobbery thing and all that that you imagine people are. And uh, Luke was absolutely not that. Um, it was a delight. and We laughed and we enjoyed it and... I'm really glad I got the opportunity to listen to him talk about his book because seeing something from the author's perspective is always going to change your preconceptions of work. So thank you to Luke for for spending the time with me and uh, thank you all for listening and such. We'll be back in two weeks with... um, Oh, what have we got? What have we got? I recorded one a couple of weeks ago with a toy maker, puppet maker, model maker, um, which obviously is a complete change of pace, but I'm looking forward to you hearing it, so look forward to that, um, and a reminder, music, danlesack.bandcamp.com, I do see when you buy stuff, and I notice that every time there's a podcast out, someone picks something up, so I genuinely appreciate that, Patreons, you know I love you. It makes a huge difference. Like, we we see like a hundred bucks a month or something from Patreon. And that generally covers the cost of petrol to get places or train tickets. That's basically the total cost of the podcast. But, you know, it's like 30 odd quid to get into London. So it eats up real quickly. But genuinely appreciate your willingness to keep the podcast going. Um... But yeah, that's it. That's it. Really rambly today. I feel like I'm slightly out of practice on the intro-outro game. But um, as I've got to record another one of these in the next couple of days, uh, hopefully that one will be a little smoother. I tried to do a smooth voice there, and my voice just went... Crumpled. I've got a voice like a sack full of crumpled paper. Um, But yeah. I'll see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.